from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. The primaries for the 2020 presidential election are just kicking off, but already there are noticeable differences in the way campaigns are being run. I'm Jennifer Plager, a senior editor with CUNA. I recently spoke with David Plouffe, President Policy and Advocacy at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Campaign Advisor for President Barack Obama in 2008. Plouffe will speak at the 2020 CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference February 25th in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Plouffe talks about the current presidential campaigns, what the November election results could mean for credit unions, his time in the White House, his current role with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and more. David, as primary season for the 2020 election gets underway, how have these campaigns been different from previous campaigns? Well, I think one difference is just the dominance of social media, which, you know, there is no state lines on social media, but whether it's Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, really propelling his campaign by a lot of early cable TV appearances or folks who are, you know, winning the social media war day to day. And I think that's different in a way. I think Jimmy Carter, you know, the Jimmy Carter strategy wouldn't work today. Even the Barack Obama approach of 2008 wouldn't work today to just basically, you know, go into one or two states and spend all your time there. And almost anything else that happening didn't matter. I think it all matters now. So that's, that's different. And I think the other thing that's interesting is I think there was a belief that maybe this is the election cycle where television ads had outlived their usefulness, but we see how important they still are. Mayor Pete really gained strength in Iowa in part by doing some early advertising. Uh, Bernie Sanders' ads, I think, have had an impact. So every election cycle, more and more of the spend should be on, you know, social media uh, platforms. But television is still the quickest way in the shortest amount of time to reach people. So I think that's interesting. I think the other change is... Um, Social media, really, in 16, it was important, but I think you see much more today the ability for people to themselves organize on social media. So doing relational organizing, people who are supporters of a candidate, not necessarily organizing off a list, right, but reaching everybody they can. You know, Elizabeth Warren does selfies with everybody that attends her events, in part so that those people then will post on their own networks and say, I'm supporting Elizabeth, will you join me? So I think social media has put a lot more power in the hands of an individual citizen to get involved and recruit others. And so I think you're seeing that intensify this cycle. It sounds like campaigning is, is a little bit different than when you worked on the Obama campaigns back in the early 2000s. Well, particularly in 2008. I mean, by 2012, you know, Facebook was more prominent, you know, as was YouTube. In, in 08, they were less so, uh, although YouTube was starting to get some strength. So, yeah, I think, I think if you're running for any office today, you have to think, let's say you're unveiling a policy or you're responding to your opponent's attack, right, or you're announcing a new endorsement. You have to think Facebook and Instagram first. And that's a big change because I think even back in 16, people would think about, well, who are we doing an interview with? What's the speech I'm going to give? Right. So like the the top of the totem pole has to be, how am I 
communicating whatever it is I'm trying to communicate on Facebook and Instagram. Twitter is less important for voters, more important as a filter because, you know, so many people, reporters are there and insiders are on there. But if you're trying to reach actual voters, your speech is secondary to the content you're going to put on Instagram or Facebook. The interview you do with a newspaper or television station is secondary. So that's a big change. And that has changed a lot even since 12. You also um, worked as an advisor in the Obama administration. What, what were some of your favorite memories from that time? Well, I think, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act being upheld by the Supreme Court was a big moment. Uh, the night our special forces, you know, went into the compound in Abbottabad and, and found bin Laden was a great night. You know, the Supreme Court ruling that the, the right uh, to marry would also involve same-sex couples was a huge moment. Some of the economic battles we won around making our tax code more fair were huge. Then there were some tough nights, obviously. The shooting in Sandy Hook was so incredibly, uh, most importantly for those families, but but really hit the president hard and hit all of us hard. The debt ceiling crisis uh, in the summer of 2011 was a low moment. But I think when you work at the White House, if you don't walk in every day when you see that building and, and when you leave late at night and look back on it, and don't pinch yourself and consider yourself fortunate to be there, you know, whether it's a good day or a bad day or somewhere in between. You know, it's a real privilege to be in that building where so much history has come before you and so much history will come after you. But nothing easy comes to the White House. You know, if it was easy, it would be solved somewhere else, whether that's Congress, the states. And a big part of, of being president and working in the White House is you're dealing with stuff that wasn't part of your agenda, right? A crisis or a change or a threat. So, it's brutally hard, but there's nothing like working there. I mean, it really is just an enormous privilege not to spend any time working there, no matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. I talked to a lot of people who, who never worked in government before, who, who came in during the Obama administration, you know, some of the best times of their life. So there's a, a weighty responsibility on you at all times, because despite, I think, what some people think, you're not there to do your own bidding or the bidding of your party. I think Trump may be an aberration here where I think he's very focused on advancing his own interests. But I think historical, Bush, Reagan, Clinton, Obama, you know, you're there first and foremost to try and serve the American people. And that's why presidents sometimes get a lot of criticism from members of their own party because they have to make decisions, you know, in sort of the greater interest. They don't have the luxury of making decisions based on a partisan playbook. You know, long days, long nights, all weekends, so personally, uh, it's very taxing, but you're almost exhilarated every day uh, because you're working in the White House and you're, you're working on really tough problems. When I left, I knew I'd miss it every day and I wouldn't miss it every day. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> you know, some of the best years of your life, but you also realize you can't do it forever. Still looking ahead a few months down the road, once the elections are done in 2020, what do you think? could be some possible changes for the financial service industry? Well, whether uh, Trump gets a second term or a Democrat wins, you know, I still think you're going to have the Senate pretty closely divided. And, you know, the House, even if the Democrats retain control of the House, you know, they'll have a healthy margin, but, but not a supermajority. So I still think you're going to have probably a limited menu of things um, that could get 60 votes in the Senate get some bipartisan support in the House and get a signature from a president, whoever that is. So 
I think one important question will be if a Democrat wins, who are they appointing to some of the regulatory agencies and some of the, you know, relevant departments? So that'll be super important. You know, if Elizabeth Warren were to win, I think you're going to have a lot of people appointed who are going to be very activist in their outlook. Some of the other Democrats, maybe a little less so. I think there's likely to be another attempt at doing something on infrastructure. So, you know, there could be some interesting financing opportunities if if that were to happen. I think immigration reform is something the country desperately needs, and, and maybe there'll be another run at that to try and pass something. I think a change of president or a a continuation of Trump's term probably doesn't change the fact that gridlock will be the operative word in Washington. If a Democrat wins, the biggest changes will probably be A, in foreign policy, where they have a lot more leeway to execute their agenda and vision, and secondly, in regulation as opposed to legislation. So who the regulators are and what they're going to focus on, I think, is most important. I wish this weren't the case, but are we likely to have in the next four years immigration reform, infrastructure reform, a long-term a fiscal package being passed. Sadly, maybe one of those things could happen, but I don't think Washington, you know, at least congressionally, I don't think you're going to see that operate much better. So that's challenging. A lot of the Democrats are running on really big plans and ideas, almost all of which are going to have difficulty getting through Congress. So, you know, I think that'll be a challenge if there is a Democratic president, because a lot of the people who work so hard for them, you know, might expect a lot of their agenda to get realized pretty quickly. And anything that involves legislation, I think, is going to be tremendously difficult. Do you have any advice for what credit union leadership can do to prepare for, as you said, some of this gridlock that might be happening? Well, I think it's really to think through, so what are your priorities and what are the different levers to help your customers and the industry? Um, And then secondly, what could be on the horizon that's more challenging, You know, whether that be legislative or regulatory, and, and how do you get ahead of that in terms of educating and meetings and credit unions obviously have such a powerful asset in all their, in every corner of the country. They're not big banks, so their reputation is much stronger. You've got just average workers, small business people. So I think for members of Congress and and regulators to have the full picture of the credit union and industry, (laughs) you know, whereas the credit union, a collection of small businesses and small town and, and suburban and urban consumers, which I think the credit union industry has a huge advantage in uh, because they are not seen as big New York banks. And so to also understand, like, there's going to be issues where perhaps there's a temptation legislatively or from a regulatory standpoint to paint with a really broad brush. So part of that education is to understand how you're different than some of the others in the industry, what would be helpful to unlock more value for your customers and therefore the communities of these elected officials but also where some of the changes that might be proposed could adversely affect you. Because I think a lot of the regulatory and legislative ideas, particularly from the Democratic side, they're not trying to harm credit unions, (laughs) but there could be unintended consequences. So I just think, you know, an early warning system is critically important that you have the time to sort of think through what kind of campaign. And when I say campaign, I don't mean electoral, but everything these days is a campaign. How do you put together a campaign to to properly educate the stakeholders that are going to be making decisions that could, you know, either positively or adversely affect your institutions and your members? And David, you'll be speaking to the CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference in a few weeks. A, first, are you excited to do that? And B, what do you hope folks take away from your keynote address? 
Well, I'm very excited. Um, I love credit unions. I love driving through small towns in Iowa or Ohio or, you know, Nevada and seeing the local credit union being part of the mosaic of those communities. So I have great affection. For me, I think it'll just be interesting because this will be late February. So we will have gotten through Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. So we're going to know a lot more about the Democratic nomination fight. So I'll be interested to talk to people, you know, right on the eve of South Carolina about where our process is, thoughts about the general election, which I think is going to be, you know, an absolute dogfight, and some of the ramifications of that in terms of, of policies and regulations, but also just in terms of um, this is going to be such a divisive election. The aftermath of it is something we're all going to have to tend to quite carefully. But this will be a really interesting time to gather just because we're talking today before anyone's voted or caucus. <laughs> you know, by the time we meet in Washington for the conference, uh, we will have three states gone. And what that means is there will be some people who have to drop out as a result of those elections. There will be some people who may still be running, but they're essentially dead people walking because they have no chance. So we'll be down to, you know, two or three candidates. And I think there'll be a lot of interest in what Michael Bloomberg's up to. So he will have not competed at any contests by the time, you know, when we're meeting in Washington for the conference, but he will start competing, you know, about a week after. And so, you know, talking about the Bloomberg dynamic and what that may mean, I think will be super important too. And finally, David, you're involved with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative now. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what your role is? It's a, you know, relatively new philanthropy. Um, Its focus areas are criminal justice reform here in the U.S., trying to help uh, pass comprehensive immigration reform here in the U.S., and we do a lot of work trying to help with the housing crisis here in California. We also are working on a lot of data and technology in the science space, the big project there being trying to help map the human cells. You know, we have the Human Genome Project. This is a a project to map the human cell. And then we uh, do a lot of work around old child learning, and personalized learning and education. So some of that is technology. So it's a unique philanthropy in that about half the people that work there are engineers or designers. Some of it's advocacy. So we've been very involved in criminal justice ballot initiatives and state legislative efforts to try and um, reduce incarceration. What I like about the approach is it's not in the beginning taking levers off the table, right? So to make progress in any area, You know, you're going to need change in policy at the government level. You're going to need better technology and data. Uh, You're going to need to support existing change makers in the field. So one of the things that really appeals to me about the work is we have sort of the full suite of tools at our disposal, you know, to help those on the front lines bring about change. So I've never worked in philanthropy full time. So it is nice to wake up and All you're trying to do is make good decisions to help people. It's a really healthy way to live because, you know, you're not trying to gain market share. You're not trying to gain political share. You know, you're just trying to make good decisions. And because we have the benefit of of Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan's generosity, we're not fundraising either, right? So it's been a really rewarding and healthy part of my life. But I'm, I'm most excited about criminal justice reform just because at a time of great political gridlock in the country you're seeing a lot of progress. It's, it's got real bipartisan appeal. I think generally there's a almost universal view now that um, we incarcerated too many people in this country and we need to quickly decarcerate 
and work on second chances for people and look at alternatives. So that's exciting because you're pushing against an open door. I think a lot of other issues, whether they're ones we work on at Chan Zuckerberg or just generally in the country, it's hard to see like the immediate pathway to success, right? I think in criminal justice, we're not going to make all the progress we need to over the next five to 10 years, but I think we can make a lot. And that's really exciting to see because you just see the impact it has on those people who've been affected, the families, the communities. It's, and I see this, I'm sure that, you know, you've got members in your credit unions, you know, that are interested or have hired people who've been uh, through the um, criminal justice system. I mean, businesses have a huge need for great talent and workers. And I think that um, a lot of people are realizing that, you know, we've got millions of people in this country that probably can be awesome members of workforces uh, if we just give them the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. 